Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Well, let's just start, if that's okay with you, introducing yourself. All right. My name is Betty Reed Soskin, and I am uh, will be 100 years old on the 22nd of September. How does it feel to be 99? Oh, I guess the same way it felt to 98. <laughs> <laughs> Betty Reed Soskin was born on September 22, 1921. When she was little, her family lived in New Orleans. I remember lots of things about being a small child in Louisiana. Here's Betty in an oral history she recorded about 20 years ago, archived at UC Berkeley. I have images in my head of, of uh, standing on top of, of a huge wooden chest outside of a grocery store uh, in which ice and oysters were kept, and the men in the community would be out cracking oysters and, and drinking beer, and my dad standing me up on top this wood chest and my singing in a little Spanish town. <laughs> Betty has by far the best recall of anybody I, I have ever met. Here's Jesse Taylor. He's Betty's cousin, and they worked together on her memoir. We were talking one time about the family when they, they moved here from Louisiana, here meaning to Oakland, California. And Betty remembered the names of all the neighbors and where they worked and what their relationship was. And to me, that and that was she was going back to the 1920s. We were talking in the 1990s then. So she was going 70 years back and remembering these individuals. And it, I, at the time, I thought, well, maybe there was something special about this, but that's how our memory worked. So that was, to me, that was the beginning of, I, I held her in awe of her memory. She's lived a lot of lives and seen a lot of American history and seen the way history is shared and passed along to younger generations, what gets told and what gets left out. When she was 85 years old, she became a ranger with the National Park Service. 
She's stationed at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park in Richmond, California, where she lives. She says the story we're often taught about American women during World War II, stepping up to the plate to keep the country running, working in factories, becoming taxi drivers, streetcar operators, and going into offices, meant something different for her and the women she knew because she's black. She says it's not that that story isn't true. Quote, it's just that it's incomplete. And that I suddenly realized that what was being remembered was dependent upon who was in the room. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. Betty Reed Soskin was 20 years old in 1941 when Pearl Harbor was bombed. She remembers four brand new shipyards were built not far from her house. All over the country, the defense industry was ramping up efforts to build ships and planes and tanks. And with so many men leaving to join the military, manufacturers were in need of a new workforce. The U.S. Office of the War started creating advertisements targeting women to fill these jobs. One read, Can you use an electric mixer? If so, you can learn to operate a drill. Another showed a picture of a woman wearing blue coveralls and high heels, using what looks like a riveting gun to repair an airplane. The ad reads, Picture of a debutante, 1943 style. And under that, it says, Everything's changed now. Women had to, of course, take over the jobs that had been previously held by men. And they they did them very well. But that meant not only riveting, and they took over in the drafting room. They took over in the community. They, they took over driving streetcars. They did everything so that I think that we're not for the women. I'm not sure that war would have been won. In 1942, Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company hired an artist named J. Howard Miller to create a poster they could hang in their factories to encourage the women working there and boost morale. Today, it's a famous image A white woman, with her hair pulled up under a red bandana, is flexing her bicep and looking directly at the viewer. She has a full face of makeup and a sort of speech bubble over her head with the words, We can do it. The poster reportedly hung in Westinghouse factories for only two weeks and wasn't well known at all until the 1980s when it resurfaced in an article about recruiting and morale posters. The name Rosie came into the picture in 1942 with a song called Rosie the Riveter. All the day long, where the rain does shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory. Rosie, the Riveter. Rosie's got a boyfriend, Charlie. Charlie, he's a Marine. Rosie is protecting Charlie. Working overtime on the riveting machine. After the song, the women working in factories and shipyards 
became known as Rosie's. Employers around the country initially refused to hire black women. Activists pressured President Franklin Roosevelt to sign an executive order that banned racial discrimination in the defense industry. As professor and author Maureen Honey writes, many employers held out, attempting to only hire white women or white men, until they were forced to do otherwise. An estimated 600,000 black women worked in shipyards and factories, in computer science, and as clerks in offices. Betty Reed Soskin was 20 years old and newly married. She was living in Berkeley with her new husband, Mel Reed. She got a job at the Boilermaker and Shipbuilders Union. It was mostly clerical work, filing papers and taking dues payments. Before the war, white union leaders prevented black workers from joining. When the war began, they were allowed to join a separate branch that was just for the black workers. They were given fewer benefits and didn't have a say in union activities. The war had come, but racial integration had not. So that the place for black women would have been limited. I was working in a union hall that was decidedly for black people. Her husband, Mel, had tried to join the Navy, but was told he wouldn't be allowed to go to sea. He could be a cook, but nothing more. So he went to work in nearby shipyards instead. Betty and Mel lived on Sacramento Street in Berkeley, and the Santa Fe rail line ran straight up and down their street. Here's more from Betty's oral history. Day and night, there were huge, long trains of people being brought in from the five southern states, or at least from everywhere, but mostly for the five, five southern states to work in the shipyards, hanging out of windows, because at that time the windows weren't sealed in trains, hanging out of windows, leaning out of the vestibules, waving, and we were sort of, you know, the, the welcome committee all along our street. We would wave people into, into California. Betty remembers that the local United Service Organizations, or USOs, hosted social events, but they were only for white servicemen. So she and Mel started their own social events. She says that one afternoon in July of 1944, they had about a dozen sailors who were stationed at Port Chicago over to their house. They were listening to records and dancing. The sailors had a curfew, so they left around sunset. A few hours later, Betty remembers hearing something that sounded like an explosion. The next morning, Betty and Mel learned that the explosion had happened at Port Chicago, 20 miles from their house, where many of their friends were based. Sailors were loading a large amount of weapons and ammunition onto ships. The officers in charge wanted them to go faster, sometimes even making bets with each other about whose crew could load the most explosives in the least amount of time. At 10.18 p.m., witnesses said they heard something like wood splintering and then a loud explosion and then a second explosion. 320 people were killed, the majority of them black sailors. Many were never identified. 
It's been called World War II's worst home front disaster. A month later, a group of surviving sailors stationed at Port Chicago refused to load the ships. They said they were afraid and that the conditions weren't safe. This led to the largest naval mutiny in U.S. history. Betty says that the story of Port Chicago just isn't talked about very much not unlike the story of black women during World War II. After the war ended, American women working in the shipyards and factories were told that they were no longer needed and should make way for all the men returning home. The story that's often told about this period is that women stepped in and went to work in order to keep the country running, and that after the war, they stood down and everything went back to, quote, normal. When the war was over, they were sent back home and sent to their kitchens and take care of their children. Some of them resented it. But most of them, I think, went back and did it quite willingly until Betty Friedan let them out (laughs) in the 80s. But Betty says most black women she knew already had jobs before the war. And that the idea that the whole war created conditions where, for the first time, women worked doesn't show the whole picture. She said, okay, the story you're telling, I don't identify with that story. Here's Jessie Taylor. And she never downplayed that story. She never said that was an important story. But she said, you're leaving out the story of the Japanese Americans uh, who were interned, um, the the Mexican Americans uh, who were ship shipyard workers, uh, but not necessarily Rosies, and the African Americans, and and that story has to be told, and it's a different story. Uh, they 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 came together in the war effort, but they had different stories. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. (laughs) I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. Like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country 
conquer their next course. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. After the war, what did Betty and Mel do? Well, Mel, uh, you know, Mel came out of the war and he had he had some money. And Mel was a tremendous athlete. He was um, uh, if if African-Americans had been allowed in professional sports, uh, major professional sports, he could have been a a baseball player or a football player. Uh, So he and he was very charismatic. He knew a lot of people. And so he and Betty decided that they were going to open up a uh, record shop because that he had the personality that he could he could attract a lot of people to the record shop. So they they operated one of the few African American owned record shops west of the Mississippi. Mel and Betty started out selling records in their garage. They'd move their car out to the street and set up crates full of the records. They worked with a local radio station to advertise their store. First thought we had, I think, was Winoni Harris doing Around the Clock, <laughs> which was really risque for us at that time. The whole, you know, it was really over the edge. And it, it was really innuendo, sexual innuendo. And people, literally, they would come down, they couldn't even find the place because it was so tiny in this garage. But they would circle the block until they found it, trying to buy this record. And that's when we found out how big Black music really was. Well, sometimes I think I will. Yes, and sometimes I think I won't. Betty and Mel started a family. They eventually had four children. And they had a dream of building their own house. By 1952, they'd saved up enough money to buy some land in a suburb not far from Oakland, in Contra Costa County. Many of the neighborhoods in Contra Costa County and in Oakland and in Berkeley were off-limits to black renters and black owners. So I believe they had to have a white friend to stand in for the purchase. And uh, they they got a lot of opposition for being there. Um, I know Betty talked about uh, at one point um, they were having a minstrel show at the school. And Betty was highly offended. And so she, she fought against that. And I went to the school and the principal's office. And that evening, they were going to be, all of them in blackface, the teachers and faculty. And I walked in and said, you know this is wrong. And he said, I didn't know until I saw your face. But you need to know, Mrs. Reed, that you know we're not we're not really making fun of black people. We want to show you as happy-go-lucky. And I said, "Do I look happy-go-lucky?" <laughs> 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 and he said, "No." 
And I said, well, you do know that minstrel shows grew out of ridicule of African Americans and that this is wrong. And how do I explain this to my son? And I said, I know that it's too late for me to do anything about this or for you to call off your show, but you're going to perform it in front of me. And I sat in the audience that night in the front row and made them put on the show in front of me. It was that kind of thing that began my activism. But I never really, I always felt that, that, that it was wrong and that people were going to discover it was wrong because basically people were good. <laughs> How I maintain that, I do not know. She became active in the local Unitarian Universalist Church and got involved with the Black Panther Party. She and Mel divorced, and she remarried to a UC Berkeley research psychologist named William Soskin. She became active in local politics, working as a field representative for an assemblywoman. She was invited to attend a National Park Service planning session to commemorate certain World War II sites outside of San Francisco in Richmond, California. They were proposing a kind of Rosie the Riveter Park. Betty remembers there being all kinds of architects and historians and city planners in the room. The name tag that had been created for her read, Former Rosie. She says during the meeting, it occurred to her that, quote, no one else in the room realized that the story of Rosie the Riveter is a white woman's story. I and women of color were not represented by this park as it was proposed. As she listened at the planning meeting, she also thought about the men who died at Port Chicago and how they needed to be remembered too. Those men were too young to have left survivors. And that the fact that they were boys was key. That those kids who had been in my house were not married. They would not have fathered children. And that now the remnants of those lives were suddenly going to be lost. And that it was terribly important that as as a participant in the creation of this park, if it was going to be a park, I needed to be a, a surrogate survivor. That that history was dependent upon people like me Uh, remember. She asked how the park planners were going to address the 120,000 Japanese and Japanese Americans who'd been incarcerated during the war and the Mexican Americans who worked on shipyards. I was interested in spreading the word of being sure that all of the stories that were intended to be told were told. And my being here allowed them to be told because that's what I was bringing along with myself into the parks. After the Rosie the Riveter National Park was completed, Betty was invited to stay on. She was offered a job and eventually a park ranger uniform at 85 years old. I never dreamed that it 
that I would be staying there even now. I'm not even I'm not even retired yet, and I'm I'm I will be a hundred. They seem to not want me to go. <laughs> um, as long as one feels useful, I think we do stay in place. They say that people who feel they have a purpose are usually the ones that live longest and, and are the most healthy. Do you feel that way? Yes, I do. I, f- I feel very useful. I feel as if I could be useful even now. I I don't know that I am, but I feel as if I am. In 2015, the National Park Service posted a photo of Betty leading a tour and quoted her as saying, I wear my uniform at all times because when I'm on the street or in an elevator, I'm making every little girl of color aware of a career choice she may not have known she had. I don't think that I ever dreamed that I would be a park ranger or that I'd want to be a park ranger. I never... never really understood what it was. I've now visited a number of parks, and I know that that they are absolutely wonderful. But I didn't know that. I didn't know. it. I didn't move toward them when I should have. It's as if someone dropped the uniform on someone on, on life that I was already living. I, I I think that when I was any number of years, when I was working in any other areas of my life, I can't even remember what I was doing other than this. But I do feel as if I am doing what I was intended to do. I absolutely adore the role that I play in the park. It will be my role, I guess, as long as I'm living. You, you've had a, a very good, long life. Um, what's the secret to a good life for someone who's 60 years younger than you, 70 years younger than you, has some time left in front of them. What's the thing you think about that you wish maybe you had thought about when you were 35 or 40? Oh, I think I discovered very, very early in life that life was filled with questions and that it was the questions that were important, never the answers. The answers always change. The questions grow. I discovered that a long time ago, and it's been my absolute way of life ever since. 
We're very lucky to speak with you, and I, I hope you have uh, a good rest of your summer and a very happy birthday coming up. Thank you very much. And have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Love is created by Lauren Spohr and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Susanna Robertson is our producer. Engineering by Russ Henry. Audio mix by Rob Byers, Michael Raphael, and Johnny Vince Evans A Final Final V2. Special thanks to David Dunham, Michael Lang, Martin Meeker, and Jill Slessinger at UC Berkeley's Bancroft Library Oral History Center, and to Lily Clark. Betty Reed Soskin's memoir, edited by her cousin, Jesse Taylor, is Sign My Name to Freedom, a memoir of a pioneering life. This is Love is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. Radiotopia.